So I think it's appropriate that we're going to look at uh, James 1 and verse 2 and talking about count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into divers trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So we're going to talk about uh, that uh, this morning. Now, just to remind you, this is a second in a series in the book of James, and we're going to have quite a few messages. I have no idea how many yet. Uh, but last time we talked about what it means to be a slave for Jesus Christ. James, a slave, a doulos is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talked about that, it meant four things. It meant that uh, you have absolute obedience to the master. You have an absolute humility. You don't, uh, you don't tout your own rights. Uh, you only are concerned with your responsibilities. You're absolutely loyal. Uh, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can only serve one. And so a slave was loyal to his master. And if another master asked him to do something, he didn't have to obey. But if his master asked him to do it, he had to do that. And then there's a certain pride of belonging to a good master. And certainly for Jesus, uh, we should be proud to belong to Jesus. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. We wouldn't should keep it secret. We shouldn't be closet Christians. We are proud to belong to that master. So we discuss those four aspects of being a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ and then gave you a whole lot of introductory information on the book of James. Now, one of the interesting thing about James, for those of you who didn't hear that message, is there's 108 verses and there are 54 imperative verbs. That means on average there's one command every two verses in the book of James, and we're going to see that uh, in this morning's test. Uh, now, I, I want to call this sermon, This uh, I started just to call it, count it all joy, and that certainly would have been sufficient, and that would have been title right out of the book. But I've decided to call this intentional rejoicing during purposeful testing. And you'll see where that comes from, intentional rejoicing during purposeful testing. And uh, I, I want just to start out by saying we need to not only see what's in the Scripture, but what's not there. And what's not there is he is James doesn't start this epistle like every other New Testament epistle. Usually when Paul starts an epistle, of course he always says grace and peace to be to you in the Lord Jesus Christ or you know or, or in Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. Uh, but he says grace and peace to you. And then he usually says some kind of word. He thanks them or he either thanks them for uh, their support in the ministry or he blesses them with something. But he either has some uh, uh, blessing for his readers or thanks for his readers. James doesn't do that. He jumps from I'm a slave for Jesus Christ to the first command, count it joy when you fall into diverse trials or temptations or testings. He jumps right into the exhortation. I think part of this is because this pastor uh, who is pastor of the church at Jerusalem He's writing to Jewish Christians, and he understands that these Jewish Christians are going through tough times. But he, he jumps directly in, and uh, these Jewish Christians are experiencing some difficulty. Uh, think about what it means to be a Jew, and you suddenly become a Christian. Other Jews don't want to do business with you anymore. Uh, they don't. They don't want to have anything to do with you uh, any longer, and so uh, that's that's a problem. Uh, and so he he gives them this idea that hey, you can count your suffering joy, and here's why: because there's a purpose behind it, and there's a purpose that will only be accomplished though if you respond rightly to the trials and suffering uh, that you have. So he jumps right in and, and tells us, hey, here's a purpose. Now let's read the scripture. I'm going to read it. Uh, I'll read from the right side first, the King James, and then I'll read from the left side because there's slight differences, both of which we're hearing. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, 
knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, and let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now, by the way, you'll notice I bold printed some words there. Those are the commands. The first command is count it all joy. The second command is let patience have her perfect work. And again, I said there's one command at least every two verses throughout James, and that's certainly true here. Let's look at the left side, which is the Lexham English Bible. Consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And I'll, the word various trials is a whole lot easier to understand. Now when I see the word divers trials, I have a whole new perspective since I'm scuba certified. And it is a trial sometimes to put 50 pounds on your back and try to stand up on the, on the boat and go to the back of the boat and jump in the ocean and then deal with uh, your, your wading and your flotation and everything. But that's not what he meant. Divers just meant a lot of different kinds. Okay, so uh, this is some very practical counsel. Very practical counsel to some suffering Christians. Uh, the first thing you know is just how practical the letter is. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, let's see if, let's do a quick test and see how it's practical. If any of you had a trial or a problem this week, just raise your hand. There's four of us. No, there's, there's more. Okay, so yeah, this is a practical thing. Uh, this is something we all, all need. And these were all under, these folks were all undergoing trials uh, when they professed that the Jesus Christ was their Messiah. Now, by the way, there's a whole lot of similarities and a whole lot of verses in common, actually, between James and 1 Peter. Now, James was written prior to 1 Peter, so Peter borrowed from James, uh, apparently. Uh, Peter had no doubt heard some of James' sermons, and so, but he, it mentions in 1 Peter that uh, Peter's readers were, in, which were also a Jewish audience, were in heaviness through manifold temptations. And he says, your faith is tried severely as though it were tried by fire. These are, they're writing to the same kinds of people. Now, what kind of trials did they have? And there's several different kinds. First of all, they, they did experience some persecution. Uh, in James 2, he gives a hypothetical case, but it's a case that relates to where they were. He says, but you, you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich exploiting you and they themselves dragging you into courts? Do they themselves not blaspheme the good name of the one to whom you belong? So he's, he's saying to his readers, hey, uh, you're poor, so you have you have that problem. The rich are dragging you into courts, and they're taking advantage of you. They're not helping you. They're not being charitable toward you. They're trying to take more from you. Now, that's persecution. And then he says they're blaspheming the name of the one who they are helping. Uh, in James 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and carry on business and make a profit. It's probably true that these individuals were making plans for business, and yet what happened is once they, the other Jews with whom they did business found out that they had professed Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, they didn't want to do business with them anymore. So a lot of Jewish Christians found their businesses and their trade decimated, where they couldn't do it any longer. So they had uh, persecution. Then they had a problem with sickness. Uh, James 5, he says, is any sick among you, he should summon the elders of the church and they should pray over him, anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. And I'm going to go into that a lot more when we make it to chapter 5. But they obviously there were some people who were sick. And, of course, if you're poor and you're persecuted, sickness probably is going to be there too. 
He had poverty. Now look what he says here. Now let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his high position, but the rich person in his humiliation, because he'll pass away like the flower of the grass. For the sun rises with a burning heat and dries up the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is lost. So also the rich person in his pursuits will wither away. So he says to the humble person, he says, you're poor. You're, you're lonely. Uh, you don't, everything seems to be against you, but you can rejoice in that you're a child of, of Christ. You're a child of the Father. You've you're, you're, uh, been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. You can rejoice in that, and you can also look at the fact that, that the rich person doesn't fare any better in terms of being able to take their worldly riches with him when he dies than you do. So there are a couple of reasons there, but obviously they suffered a problem with poverty. And then they suffered a problem with discrimination. Now I'll get more into this when we get into chapter 2, but apparently there was a problem where sometimes when you went to the synagogue, they would sit the rich people up front near the speaker, and uh, if you were poor or your clothes weren't as nice or pretty as others, you had to sit at the back if they had any seats, and if not, you got to stand around the wall at the back or got to sit on a dirt floor, but you didn't get to go up front. They were showing favoritism toward others, so they were being discriminated against basically by their economic status. Remember, the gospel spread initially starting at the synagogues in every city. And so there were synagogues everywhere. We talked about this last week in the dispersion or the diaspora as Jews spread out through the world and Christian missionaries or people who share the gospel, they would first go to the synagogue. And even Paul, after he became the apostle of the Gentiles, still every time he went to city, he always started with the Jews. He gave the Jews the gospel first. He always went to the synagogue first to do uh, his preaching. And so in James 2, we're going to find out that, that somebody comes in with a gold ring on his finger and there's somebody else comes in in filthy clothing and they look at one and says, be seated here in a good place. And to the poor guy says, you stand there or, or be my footstool. In other words, you, you sit down in front of me on the floor and you know, I'll prop my feet up on you. Imagine being in church where, where somebody propped their feet up on you just because you were poor. And then they also had a problem with working for bosses who didn't pay them fairly. These people would go out, and, and in Old Testament times, you were paid daily. You did the work, you got the pay. You got paid at the end of each day. Uh, most of us probably get paid you know, either by the job that we do if we're self-employed or we get paid every two weeks or you know, every uh, first and 15th of the month or something. So we don't maybe identify as much with this. But he says, come now, you rich people, weep and cry aloud over the miseries that are coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted. Your clothing has become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have become corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you. It will consume your flesh like fire. Why? You, he says, you've stored up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages that were held back by you from the workers who reap your fields cry out, and the cries of the reapers have come to the ears of the Lord of hosts. So their wages are being now. Now, that's not to say that this is an all-inclusive list of the sufferings they had, but these are certainly a few examples of what Jewish Christians were going through. And so James, knowing that all this is going on, here's his advice. Count it all joy. Uh, and when he says all joy, it's kind of a unique phrase. It means a pure, supreme joy. In other words, he, he's saying you should find this a joy that is a, a joy to end all joys. It's a nothing but joy joy. 
It's a, a pure and supreme joy. Getting to, getting to suffer. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not my natural reaction to suffering. I don't get up in the morning when I'm suffering and say, oh, what joy there is today because I'm suffering. Now, I did hear one time a story, and I'm not a Norman Vincent Peale fan because he had some bad theology and some bad, you know, in the name of positive thinking, you can get a whole lot of garbage, okay? But there is a story one time that a man was complaining in the presence of Norman Vincent Peale, and uh, Dr. Peale says, you know, I, I can take you to a place right here in New York City where there's 10,000 people that don't have a single complaint. And the guy said, oh, I would love to be part of a group like that. So Norman Vincent Peale drove him to a cemetery, and he says, not one of them is out there complaining right now. And his point being is that if you're alive, you probably got something that hurts, or you probably got a trial. You probably got a difficulty. It's, it's proof that you're alive. If you're alive, there's something going on. But, but James is saying we shouldn't see trials as punishment. It's a part of life. Uh, and trials are something that God has a good intent, even though it's a bad circumstance. It, and we shouldn't see it as a curse. Now, certainly our trials are part of the curse. You remember, everything's great in the Garden of Eden, and as soon as they fall, what's he tell them? You're, from now on, you're going to have to plow, and there's going to be thorns, and there's going to be thistles, and you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow, and things are not going to come easy anymore. So certainly the fact that we have trials is because we lived in a world cursed by sin, but that doesn't mean that when you have a trial that it automatically is a result of some sin in your life. You don't have cancer because of a sin in your life. Now, can you have sins in your life that will bring cancer or bring AIDS or bring something else? Certainly you can. There are some sins that lead to that. People with bitterness are more likely to get cancer. But it doesn't necessarily mean if you have cancer, it's because you're bitter. Uh, there's, a, there's an old saying that everybody needs to know. Uh, correlation does not equal causation. Just because two things correlate together doesn't mean one is the cause of the other. So we can't always say that uh, people with cancer are bitter. We can't always say that uh, there's some sin in their life they need to repent of, even though we know there's sins in the Bible, in fact. People had partaken of the Lord's Supper unworthily, and Paul says, for this reason, many of you are, are sick, and some even have died uh, because of your treatment of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is a big deal. Don't take it unworthily. Uh, don't think that trials are always a calamity. Uh, one of the things I have to remember is that the Bible says, one of the most frequent phrases in the Bible is, and it came to pass. I have yet to find where it says, and it came to stay. Uh, trials uh, are not always a calamity that's here, and it's here forever and ever and ever. Uh, they do pass. Some of them take a whole lot longer than, to pass than others. But it's not meant to be a calamity. It's meant to be an agent for good in our life. So we're to face it with pure joy. Now, what are some of the reasons we can have pure joy? Well, for one thing, it identifies us with Jesus Christ. Uh, it, Jesus wouldn't make us suffer unless he had done it, and he had done it well first. First uh, Peter 2.21, For even hereunto you're called, because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow in its steps. So, uh, the Lexham English Bible, based on a manuscript study, says, for this you recall because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. It's really no difference in meaning. He's left all of us an example, right? That he suffered, and he suffered without sin. So this is our example. We're going to have suffering. We're going to have trials. We need to do it without sinning. We need to do it in a way that glorifies God. 
And by the way, I think it's interesting, uh, it, it, the other difference between these two versions, uh, Lexham English Bible says you should follow in his footsteps, not just steps, but footsteps. And I thought, yeah, next time I sing that song, Footsteps in, uh, of Jesus that make the pathway glow, I'm going to think differently about that song because the footsteps of Jesus will lead us through suffering from time to time. Now, I want you to notice that this command, count it all joy, is a, an intentional reckoning. It means reckon. Uh, basically, it's an accounting term. It says put it on the books as an asset rather than a liability. Uh, you know, if you've ever done accounting, you've got assets and you've got, uh, which is what you have. You have liabilities, which is what you owe, and the difference between them is called equity or capital. So uh, he's saying you need to write down your trials not as a liability because that's the way we normally look at it. We need to write it down as an asset. It's doing something for us. Put it on the books as joy because suffering is providentially allowed. Now, by the way, I want you to notice he says, count it all joy, my brethren. James uses this term 14 times in the book of James to refer to his reader. It is an intensely personal and intensely pastoral uh, sermon. He cares about these people. Now remember, this sermon went out to basically everywhere that there were Jewish Christians and synagogues. It's called a general epistle. But James cares in his heart about all these people, many of whom he's never met because as a Jewish Christian, he knows what they're going through. He feels compassion for them. He knows the tough times that they're having. Now, by the way, it, it says, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into diverse trials. This word fall into is interesting. It, 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 uh, or he says, when you face fiery trials. Uh, Peripesite is, is like the... Uh, the story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke about the, the poor men fell among the robbers. Okay, you, you fall into it. Now, I'm sure that means that when that guy fell among the robbers, he didn't see the robbers, you know, two blocks down the road because he probably would have taken a different route. You don't keep passing when you know there's trouble ahead. And when I teach uh, safety classes or do firearms training, one of the things I teach people is learn how to be aware. You can't be aware if you're walking around with your cell phone in your hand and you're looking down at I've seen people run into cars that were right in front of them because they're focused on this little thing in their hand, and they're, they're idiots for doing so. You need to put your phone away when you're walking to your car or down the street because you need to see trouble when it's coming, and we need to learn to be aware. And, and obviously, if this man, because he didn't have a cell phone, we know that from Scripture, right? Uh, we, he was probably being aware, but he didn't see this problem coming, or he would have taken a different route. Judy and I were walking in downtown Dallas one day and happened to see a gang uh, on the right side about two blocks down. I didn't wait till I got up to them to take action. I, we got to the other side of the road long before we got there, and they kind of heckled us and made motions over there, and, and I just uh, gave them some polite reply, and I kept walking. Uh, and it's a good thing they did come closer because I would have had to go to my backup alternative, but didn't do that. Uh, but the, the point is, is this is this means to fall into something unexpectedly in a way as to be surrounded or overwhelmed by some kind of opposing force. How many times do your trials come unexpectedly? Mine do. Uh, how many times do they come and they're just kind of an overwhelming circumstance? Well, a lot of trials are. Now, he says we're to have joy in the trials. Now, I think this is interesting. James doesn't say... You should be joyful for the trials. He says, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Uh, now, 
should we be thankful for the trials? I think there's room for that. Ephesians tells us giving thanks always for all things, and that would include trials. But certainly James' focus is you're going to have trials, and they're not going to feel good, and they're going to be unpleasant, but in the midst of your trials, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Now, you notice he says uh, the trials of many kinds. Now, this word trials we need to spend a little time on. Uh, you notice in King James, I think it uses the word temptings, <laughs> but really it's testings would be the better translation here. It's the word pyrosmos. Uh, Peter uses the same words, uh, and here he says pyrosmos poi. Poikilois, uh, but in First Peter, he has the same two words reversed in order. So parasmos is the testing, poikilois is the idea of many different kinds. But he says when you're surrounded by these trials, respond with joy. That, that most of us, we rejoice when we get out of the trial. We rejoice when the healing comes from our disease or when the check comes that ends our financial difficulty or when we get the new job offer after we've been unemployed for four or five months. We rejoice when that. But James is saying we should count it all supreme joy while we're going through the trials. Now, we're going to find out that that requires some things to have that attitude, and we'll talk more about that later. So... What kind of trials are these? These are external trials. They are, they are things that are tests of our stamina. A parasmos is a particular word that means a trial that's directed toward an end or a, a goal. And what is that? The end of that trial is that anyone should emerge stronger and purer from the experience. And a few years ago, Matt here and I were meeting you know, a couple times a week to lift weights and uh, I would notice that you, you lift weights and we try to do like 15 reps and then rest a minute and do another 15. We do three sets of 15. But usually by the, the third set, if the, wet was, the weight was appropriate, you couldn't get 15 repetitions that last set. You might get six or seven and then, you know, he would make me hold it as long as I can and my arms are shaking and quivering. And he would always say when I got to that one I couldn't do, but my arms are shaking and quivering trying to do it. He says, this is the one that counts. And his point was, you don't actually build muscle till you get to the place where you fail because you can't do anymore, and that's where you're tearing your muscle down. And then what happens the two or three days after a workout like that, your body's repairing the muscle, and every time it adds a little extra muscle back. Now, it's not even 1%. It's like one half of 1% that your muscle grows. So it takes a long time before uh, you're going to... Uh, you know, notice one day, hey, that, that looks more muscular, you know, and it takes years and probably steroids <laughs> before you'd look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay? It's going to take a long time to get to, to, to that stage. But what is the end of these testings that strengthen us, uh, even though they're hard and they're difficult and sometimes, and by the way, usually after I'd work out the next day, I'd ache everywhere. Uh, but it's a good ache. There's a difference between pain that comes from having a uh, weather change because you've got titanium implants in your body and pain that comes from lifting weights that you know is doing good. But the end is that we should come out the other side of the difficulty stronger and purified from the experience. And that's the goal of our trials. So it's testing with a purpose. Uh, so give you some ideas of how the word means test 
rather than tempt. This is the word used in Greek to describe a baby bird going to the edge of the nest and flapping its wings. And I, we, we lived in a house one time when I would go up to the second story, there was a, uh, there was a tree right outside the window and, and there was a nest there. So I got to look on the nest up close and you see these baby birds getting in, into the nest and even when the mama's not there. Now they really got animated when mama came back with something in her mouth to feed them with. But, uh, and she would go put it in each of their mouths. But the rest of the time they stand on the edge and they would flap their wings like crazy even though they couldn't fly. But you know what? If they didn't do this exercise, they'd never be able to fly. Same way with a little kid. Little kids, you notice when you're holding them as infants, they start pushing up with their legs while you're holding them, and they stiffen those legs. They're building up leg strength. And then gradually they start learning to grab onto things and pull, and then they start pulling up, and then they venture out and take those first steps. And I think Grace sent us a video uh, last week of Jackson taking seven steps uh, without holding on to anything. So he's made that stage in his life, but he did a whole lot of other things first to build up that strength. By the when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, they use this word when it says the Queen of Sheba came to test Solomon. They use that word parodzine, uh, to test Solomon, test his wisdom, and give him challenge, find out if he was everything that she had heard him to be. Uh, God tested Abraham. It's just Genesis 22. One And it happened after these things, God tested Abraham. King James says God did tempt Abraham. Now, King James liked to use the word tempt, but really it's this idea he went to test him. And you remember in Genesis 22, what did he ask Abraham to do? Uh, Abraham, if you really love me, I want you to take your only son Isaac up in the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now, God never intended that Isaac should die, but I think, this is my personal opinion, I believe that uh, when when Abraham found out from God that Ishmael wasn't the heir uh, and that it was only the son of the, the free woman and not the son of the bondwoman who would inherit uh, the blessings of Abraham, uh, I think that little Isaac became the center of his world. I think he adored him. You know, here he is, he's 100 and something years old and he's got this kid and it's probably the greatest joy he's ever had in life. And now God, it gets to the place where maybe he was loving Isaac so much that it was crowding out his devotion for the Lord. And so he says, I want you to offer up your only son, Isaac. So first of all, what did Abraham have to do? He had to die to Isaac in his heart to obey God. And he had to commit again to worship God and do whatever he said, as he'd done so many other times in his life. And then it also meant that he would get to see that God gave up his son. And uh, that's why Jesus said later about Abraham, he said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. God gave Abraham a vision of Jesus Christ dying on that same mountain, Mount Moriah. On Mount Moriah, there's a hill called Golgotha. And, uh, and that's where Jesus died. I think it was pretty much in the same, same place. Now, the question is, though, can testing turn to temptation sometimes? Is there a time that happens? Well, so the Greek word has been used both ways in Scripture. So in Luke, it says, or 1 Timothy, it says this. People who want to get rich fall into temptations, and it's using this Greek word. Uh, and a trap, and into many foolish and hurt, harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. So in other words, if you desire to be rich, you'll, you'll throw your morals to the wind if it means making a buck. Uh, you'll gamble if you think it's going to get you rich, and then you fall into uh, 
hurtful lust and you get addicted to gambling and have all these other issues. And so, yes, it can become a temptation, but we also see the same word used in a positive way. Uh, Peter says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. So it's an external trial. Here's, here's what I think. When we have trials, if we respond to them wrongly, our trials can become temptations. Because when we have a trial, what do we do? We look for our way to get out of it, and many times it's not a way that glorifies the Lord, in which case the trial becomes uh, a temptation. Uh, maybe you have a problem with pain, and you feel like, well, I've been in pain for so long, I'm just going to go down to the liquor store and <laughs> buy some whiskey because at least it'll inebriate, or I'll get inebriated and I won't feel the pain. problem with that is you can't glorify the Lord while you're doing that. That's the, that's the issue. Now, it is, again, testing with a purpose. Here's another example. It says in, in Judges 2.22 that God left the inhabitants of the promised land uh, in the promised land to test Israel in the future. He says, uh, these are the nations, I'll read Judges 3.1, these are the nations that Yahweh left to test Israel by them, that is to test all those who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. He says, I'm going to leave some things here. We're going to test you. We're going to see if you're really following me, if you're really ready to go to war with me, if you're really ready to be the people that you need to be. See, uh, it is the testing that made Israel Israel. It's what developed their character. And uh, so it is testing with a purpose. Uh, it, testing is what makes the people of God. Uh, that experience in Israel is what contributed. It's interesting in Deuteronomy that uh, the writer Moses, of course, refers to uh, how God got them out of Egypt. And he says this, has, has a God ever attempted to take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation using trials and signs and wonders and war with an outstretched arm and with great and awesome deeds like all that Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? And from then on in history, every time somebody wanted to remind Israel of who they were, you know what they reminded them of? God took you out of Egypt. That became the identity. Those are the people that were delivered out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. That's what they were famous for. In fact, is when we were we were reading the book of Habakkuk uh, and studying the book of Habakkuk, what does he refer to? He refers to this miracle of crossing the Red Sea because that's who those people were. They became identified. It's what made them. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, the great trials that your eyes saw and the signs and wonders and the workings of the strong hand and the outstretched arm by which Yahweh your God brought you out, Yahweh will also do to the peoples because of him of whom you are in fear before them. He says, I'm going to destroy your enemies because of who you are, because you learned to trust me. Now, what can God do in our trials? And this is a reason we can give God thanks. God can do a lot of stuff if we embrace our trials with joy. He can glorify himself. He can strengthen our faith. He can help us. I notice that in my trials, I see who my true friends are, the ones who really do stuff. Uh, we've been having this trial of plumbing uh, because of the, the problem that we had recently uh, with uh, everything going on uh, from the big winter freeze. And uh, I know that Jim Willis is a true friend because uh, he'll come up here, work without pay, uh, he's been up here at least three different times, and you know, we plug leaks and find more leaks and plug that and find more. And I think we're to the bottom of it. Uh, there was a copper, I, I meant to bring it today, there was a copper uh, elbow 
underneath the sink. And we kept wondering why we had the water cut off and it was still getting wet under the sink. We didn't understand that. Uh, when you cut off all the water, there shouldn't be any water anywhere. And yet, there's water all underneath the sink when we got here yesterday. And first of all, we found out this little copper thing that somebody didn't solder well. You could literally do this, and, and the joint came apart. Now, if it had been soldered well, you could have never done that. So there was a problem, and probably what happened, it had a weak solder joint, and the freeze pushed it just enough that it came out and started leaking. But also, it means that our water meter out here uh, is having an issue when it's totally shut off. It's still letting a trickle of water through. And I'll tell you more about that when we get there. But anyway, uh, here's another thing. God, so God does help me see who my true friends are when going through trials. And it motivates us to spend time in his loving presence. When I had fibromyalgia for eight and a half years, I spent a lot of time on my knees asking God for grace because I was in serious pain. And still today, pain does that a lot to me. It forces me to my knees um, God motivates us to spend time in his presence. And God likes us to go through trials sometimes just so he can show the world he can take care of his own children. Uh, I think that's marvelous that he, he takes care of us. I think sometimes we feel like we're drowning and God's trying to teach us how to swim. That's another thing trials do. It enables us to learn new skills and to learn how to trust in God. And he reminds us that he's our loving and supplying father. So let me read you this quick quote by F.J. Hort. It says, The Christian must expect to be jostled by trials in the, on the Christian way. All kinds of experiences will come to us. There will be the test of the sorrows and the disappointments which seek to take our faith away. There will be the test of seductions which seek to lure us from the right way. There will be the test of dangers the sacrifices and the unpopularity which are so much a part of the Christian way. But they're not meant to make us fall. They're meant to make us soar. They're not meant to defeat us. They're meant to be defeated. They're not meant to make us weaker. They're meant to make us stronger. Therefore, we should not complain about them. We should rejoice in them. Christians are like athletes. The heavier the course of training they undergo, the more they are glad because they know that it's preparing them all the better for victorious effort. Sometimes I, sometimes when I really hurt, I, I wonder just, you know, okay, God, what are you training me for? But that's, that's a great perspective. Now, we need to finish by looking at the results of this testing. And there's an old African proverb that says, smooth seas do not make skillful sailors. You want somebody that really knows how to run a sailboat, find somebody that's uh, been on the ocean and been up and down when the ocean's rough. Uh, a number of years ago, my brother... Of course, my brother worked for NASA on the space shuttle project, and there was a little period of time between uh, ending his career with the United States Air Force and starting in the astronaut program at NASA that he took a break. And he bought a 26-foot-long sailboat, which sounds like a big sailboat, and he decided to sail it from North Carolina around uh, Florida and the Everglades and then all the way into the bay uh, near uh, Houston, and that was his plan. And he got out there, and he realized very quickly that there were boats on the ocean passing him that had lifeboats bigger than his 26-foot-long sailboat. Not only that, he found out that 26-foot-long sailboats up and down, up and down the waves, it was a rough ride. He got to the floor of Everglades. He says, I've had enough of this. He sold the boat and flew home. But, you know, he had the experience, and he can still recount it. But, you know, you don't learn good sailing skills on smooth seas. 
And similarly, we don't really learn how to handle life till we've been through some problems. You're, you don't know how to tell somebody else how to be a good parent till you've suffered some heartbreaks as a parent. Uh, or you suffer, you don't know how to comfort somebody else in their suffering until you've suffered a little yourself. These make us more effective. So here, here's what he says. Look at verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Or the Lexham English Bible uses a different word, which is better than patience, in my opinion. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, by the way, that's the Greek word dukimion, which is used of silver coins that there are, it's sterling silver. Uh, those of you who have bought silver coins as an investment know that on the outside of the coin, and I, I did this a number of years ago, uh, I started buying silver coins when they were $19 an ounce, and then later I sold them when it got to $42 an ounce, and we're seeing a repeat of that going on right now. But if you get a silver coin, you look around the edge, it'll say 0.9999% pure, or, or pure. It doesn't say percent, it says pure. What it's saying is there might be a little tiny bit of impurity, but this is practically pure in every way. And that what, what gets rid of the impurities? Because silver doesn't come out of the ground looking like that. Well, they have to put it in the fire. And when, the, when it heats up, the impurities come to the top of the silver, and the silver settles to the bottom, and they scoop that off. That's what is called the dross. And there's a hymn that says, Thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. Well, it works the same for silver. And it takes fire to get rid of that. So uh, this hupomene means a sterling coinage. Another meaning behind it is that it is its perseverance toward a goal, uh, not just tolerating your circumstances. So if picture, and you will, and I've used this before, picture a, a 80 mile an hour wind and you're out in it trying to get somewhere and one guy is leaning forward and he says, I am not going to let this wind stop me. So as hard as you can, he's pushing you, grabbing onto stuff, but he's making forward progress. Uh, the problem is, is that there's another guy standing next to him that's just saying, I am not going to be moved by this wind. Now, the Baptist is the guy that says, I'm not going to be moved, because we all say that all the time. I'm not going to be moved. But that's not the Christian attitude. The Christian attitude is, I'm going to keep going no matter what. This is unswerving constantly. Doesn't turn the left, doesn't turn the right. Keeps plowing forward no matter how difficult the circumstance. And that's what we need to, to develop. It's not just taking it. It's achieving what God wants you to do anyway. So endurance, and this is a good definition. It's worth writing down this definition, which is why I've highlighted it for you here. Endurance is a growing determination in the face of adversity based on hope. Let's break that down just a minute. It's a growing determination. As life gets tougher, you have to have more and more determination against the trials to do what you, God has called you to do. And it's in the face of adversity. You don't see endurance when it, things are easy, okay? If you're already used to running 10 miles a day, then running a 440 lap around a track at your local school is not endurance. That's just for fun. But when you, when you have to do something for a very long time that you're uncomfortable with and you don't know how you're going to get through and you're praying for God to help you, well, that's endurance. You learn endurance. Uh, it's in the face of verse based on hope. There's the deal. We hope that God gives us the grace to get through it. We hope that will survive and be able to tell others what the lessons that we've learned. We hope that God will be pleased with us. It's, it's growing determination in the face of adversity based on hope. Now, those who suffer can express joy. He says, count it all joy because we have a confidence that the, Jesus Christ will vindicate us. In 1 Peter 4.13, Peter said, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice 
so that the revelation of his glory, by of his glory, you may rejoice and be glad. So we, we are going to have an opportunity to rejoice. By the way, early in the early Christian history, people were very impressed by the Christian martyrs. And one of the things that amazed non-Christians in, in the centuries of Christian persecution is that they didn't die grimly, grimly they died singing. There's lots of accounts in Fox's Book of Martyrs, people being burned at the stake or being thrown to the lions, and the martyrs sing hymns. And everybody looked at that, and it creeped them out, quite frankly. It, it, it freaked them out. What's wrong with these people that they'll sing while they're dying? And there were people that wrote about that. Uh, one smiled in the flames. I asked him, what do you find to smile at there? He says, I saw the glory of God and was glad. Wow. I remember years ago, Judy's uncle, Uncle Paul, was dying of colon cancer. He'd already had one round of cancer, and they did surgery, and they said they got it all. But when it came back, it was stage four. It was terminal with it. Uh, Uncle Paul had a lot of his family, uh, brothers and sisters, that did not know Jesus Christ. So he took off from work. He started traveling to visit his brothers and sisters to share with them the gospel. Uncle Paul had been a uh, missionary in Taiwan for a brief period of time. He came back. He ran uh, what is now known as LifeWord Broadcast Ministries. Our church supports them, uh, and it is a radio broadcast and TV broadcast uh, to parts of the world where we can't even send missionaries or parts of the world where it's impractical to get missionaries, like all the islands in the Philippines. There's more than 600 islands there, and yet we've got TV uh, that's being beamed to them. And, uh, but Uncle Paul finally got stage. He was in uh, first the Baptist Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was on the third floor, and he was screaming. So and normally when you get to that final stage, you're given so much morphine, it kind of knocks you out. And then God puts most people in a coma so that they don't have to experience all that pain. It's kind of God's way of helping people there at the very last. But Uncle Paul never went into coma. The morphine never knocked him out. They gave him the maximum dose. He was screaming so loudly that they could hear his voice on the fourth floor and on the second floor of the hospital. And uh, Judy's Aunt Johnny didn't know what else to do, and she just started singing Amazing Grace to Uncle Paul. And all of a sudden, the screaming stopped, and he started singing a song we'd never heard before. He says, I see Jesus, how sweet his face is, Lord, I'm coming home. And he sang it again, I see Jesus, how sweet his face is, Lord, I'm coming home. And he sang it a third time, and he passed into unconsciousness and died moments later. You know, that's a, I believe that he saw more of the other world than this world at that moment. And I believe that the martyrs often had that same experience where they were given a vision of, of where they were going. So when we're going through trials, don't bail out. Finish the growth that God has for you to do. He says, let endurance. Notice this is a command. And it is, a, a, so it's an imperative verb. And he says, you must let endurance have its complete work. In other words, you have to keep enduring if you want to see the blessings, if you want to see the benefits. And it's so easy for us to bail out of a situation before God has finished the work he has to do for us. It's kind of like uh, uh, you're, you get on this diet, you're all well-intentioned, and then the first time somebody invites you out to eat or uh, it's somebody's birthday and there's birthday cake there and, and something about it, uh, suddenly when you're on a diet, birthday cake looks a lot better than it's ever looked before. And, and you, you think, well, I'll just, I'll just get a piece of this. I'll start the diet again. What? Tomorrow. That's our favorite word with diets, right? But you don't see the blessings of the diet and how much better you feel. Uh, uh, Donald's mother had a, 
a little sticker on her refrigerator that says, nothing tastes so good as being slim feels. And I thought, you know, that's something we should all remember. It would be better for us if we didn't eat that so we could feel slimmer tomorrow. But it's hard. The average tenure of a pastor in the United States is 22 uh, months at one church, so less than two years. Pastor comes and stuff gets tough and uh, people aren't responding and there's problems with the budget and there's two people that get mad at each other, whatever it is, and pastors leave, especially young pastors. Uh, I've been here so long now I've forgotten how long it's been. I think it's been 14, 15 years pastors. Our pastor has finally, the previous record at this church was 18 years. Our pastor is beyond that now. He's, he's now the longest tenured pastor here. Uh, but we, we've got to the point in life where we don't just pack up and leave. We just wait, we wait on God. But staying in a casket isn't always easy. Uh, and I certainly didn't envision I'd spend my weekend plumbing. Uh, but it's, it's something that he wants us to do is, is stay until God does what he wants to do in you. Now, sometimes God moves you along. But we need to stay in, and we need to bloom where, where we're planted. So testing makes us mature. Look what he says here. Let patience, let endurance have its perfect effect. That's the word teleos. Basically, teleos means perfection toward a goal. So a sacrifice is, is teleos if it's fit to offer to God. A scholar is teleos if he's mature. A person who's fully grown is teleos. So the deal is we, we, how we meet every experience in life determines whether we're making ourselves fit or unfit for the work God has for us to do. Every trial, basically, we can respond to it one of two ways. One that just totally sidelines me, makes me useless to God. Another which makes me more useful to God. And then we, gotta, we have to think about this. Every time we have a trial, every time we have a difficulty, we have to think, how do I respond that makes me more useful to the kingdom? That's a question we need to be uh, asking ourselves. And he says you need to let it have its perfect effect so that you're complete and entire, wanting nothing. Now, a lot of people mess up what that word perfect means. They think it means to be sinless. Can we all just admit for a minute that none of us are going to be sinless this side of the grave? There's not a one of us that's ever going to achieve that. Uh, there's some people that are better at it than others. I happen to think my father-in-law is one of the godliest men I know, but I know he still struggles with sin just like we all do. Um, and certainly not to the extent that I do or probably any of us do, but uh, it's still a struggle. But what it doesn't mean perfection. What it means is that it's the perfect work of patience means we endure unto the end when one day our self-will is subdued and the will of God's fully accepted. We should get to a place in our life where we're not pursuing our own goals anymore. We just want what God wants. And that's a little easier as you get a little older. If you're walking in Christ and you're reading his word and you're maturing, quite frankly, though, I, I don't know if it's fully accomplished until we breathe our last. In which case, at that point in time, we certainly won't have any self-will anymore. We'll be in the presence of God and his will will be all that matters. But you have known Christians, I'm sure that are like that now, not perfectly, but right now they want what God wants in their life. And that's the kind of Christians we should be, that there's no practical deficiency in our implementation of God's word in our lives. Now, Jesus is an example of this. He always did the will of his Father. It caused him to suffer, uh, but he yielded a perfect obedience, and faith is the power to endure those trials and testings to do the will of God. Now, the second thing it does for us, it makes us complete. 
uh, uses the word holacroloi, uh, which means complete and entire, perfect in every part. So if you offered an animal to God, you had to examine it first, and it couldn't have a spot or blemish anywhere on it. And that, that means you examined every part of the animal. So that's what it means to be uh, completely uh, ready to offer. It makes us complete. It's also used of a priest that was fit to serve them. It means that the animal or the person has no disfiguring or disqualifying blemishes. So this intentional, unswerving constancy removes weaknesses from our character so that we can serve God better. I tell you what, when you're trying to endure, when you don't feel like it, God cuts away a lot of your flesh. He cuts away a lot of your, your uh, pride. You learn how to be humble, uh, among other things. And daily, it means that he gives us the ability to conquer old sins, to shed old blemishes, gain new virtues, until we become entirely fit for serving the kingdom. That's what it means to make us complete. And then he says, lacking nothing, or literally in Greek it says, in nothing lacking. Uh, this word, lepesithai, is, means it's used of, a, of an army that was defeated or a struggle where people just gave up. They didn't keep fighting. Uh, the failure to reach a standard that should have, uh, should have been reached. So we lose when we either give up or give in. But when trials come, we need to adopt the attitude, no matter what, I'm going to finish this and I'm going to serve the Lord regardless of the difficulties. And every day that we keep doing that, we get a little bit more like Christ. Every day we do that, God gives us more grace. And the more grace we have, the more useful we are to the kingdom. And that's the trick. It's not to give up. It's not to, and I know a lot of people, life gets tough, and they say, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I don't need that anymore. No, God hadn't given up on you. You're giving up on him. Don't do it. So how, how do we have the ability to intentionally rejoice? So I can face trials with joy because when I face that trial through faith, I get perseverance, I get endurance, and that endurance will lead me into being a mature Christian that's not deficient in the grace of God. It makes me into the man God wants me to be. But how do you welcome the ugly stuff in life with joy? And that's the next sermon, so you'll have to come back for that. Brother Steve's going to lead us in a song, and what I'd like you to do, you don't have to come forward today we won't have an invitation as such but probably every one of you got some kind of trial for some of us that's physical some of us it's financial others of us it's government red tape for others it's uh, having a new boss and a new job with new requirements but I can guarantee you that if you're here and you can fog up a mirror when you do do that chances are good you got some kind of trial I want you to maybe just take a moment while you're singing uh, stop and tell God, would you give me the grace to intentionally rejoice because I know your trials have a purpose in my life.